This is the time set for argument in the case of Sierra Club v. Trump. Mr. Byron, you may proceed. Nice to see you again. Thank you, Chief Judge Thomas. May it please the Court. Thomas Byron from the Department of Justice here on behalf of the government defendants. With me is Karen Hecker from the Department of Defense Office of General Counsel. This case is about an internal transfer of funds among DOD's accounts, and the internal transfer itself didn't harm plaintiffs. In fact, they don't contend otherwise. They contend that their interests were harmed by the subsequent downstream use of those funds for construction of border barriers and roads. But the transfer itself was authorized by a provision in the DOD Appropriations Act, and that provision was not designed to protect the kinds of interests that the plaintiffs here assert, the kinds of recreational, aesthetic, and environmental concerns that they've raised. The zone of interest requirement, which is a universal requirement, so whether they're seeking review under the APA or under an equitable ultra-virus claim, it applies in any event, and it asks this Court to determine whether those kinds of interests that the plaintiffs are asserting are aligned with the objectives of Congress's purpose in enacting the statute they rely on. Here, Section 8005 is intended to regulate the relationship between the Department of Defense and the Congress, the congressional committees, not the interests that the plaintiffs are asserting. Under your theory, who would be in the zone of interest? Well, Judge Smith, in his dissent in the stay motions decision, articulated a view that perhaps those who would otherwise have been entitled to receive the funds could be within the zone of interest, and that makes some sense, Your Honor. We don't know the entire scope. But we don't know who those people would be because the funds were never expended, contracts were never let, true? And it may be, Your Honor, that in the case of a particular transfer, there might not be a plaintiff within the zone of interest. That's true in a variety of cases, but it's not a basis for relaxing the zone of interest requirement. I just want to emphasize that the Supreme Court's grant of a stay pending appeal was based, among other reasons, the Court said, on its concern about the cause of action that the plaintiffs are relying, this zone of interest concern. On the statutory cause of action brought by the Sierra Club. But I don't see that the plaintiffs here brought statutory causes of action against the government. The causes of action that they brought were for violation of the Appropriations Act, ultra-virus, and it was the government that raised Sections 0059004, in defense. I think if you look at, obviously, the briefs in this Court, the decision below, but also the complaints, that Section 8005 forms a central part of the plaintiff's theory here. And let me take it a step back and just say that in all of the appropriations clause cases that have been discussed in the briefs and that the plaintiffs have relied on, the focus is always on the limitations in an appropriations statute. So in McIntosh, 
in Department of the Navy against FLRA and in um, Harrington in the Fourth Circuit. Let me just turn to Department of the Navy in the D.C. Circuit, where then Judge Kavanaugh made clear that um, the way Congress expresses its authority under the Appropriations Clause is through appropriation statutes, and that's why the appropriate focus in all of those cases has been on the statutory terms, the limits that the plaintiffs rely on. That's the, um, that's the basis for their concern. They say that the uh, de- Defense Department violated the limits in Section 8005, and that's why they say the Appropriations Clause is implicated. If the question were just, have these funds been appropriated by law? Of course they have. That's what the Appropriations Aren't Act Aren't you ignoring the role of the act that Congress did enact, which was for $1.375 billion in border fencing in Texas? That's what Congress appropriated. And the argument is that the government's acting um, in in violating the appropriations clause by spending in excess of that amount and in other places along the southwest boundary. So, Judge Wardlaw, let me um, take that in a couple of respects. So, first of all, if the plaintiffs have argued, for example, that by approving some but not all of the separate request by a different agency, DHS, for funding for that agency's construction. How does, wait, how does DHS being a different agency make a difference in this case where the only reason DOD did the reprogramming was because DHS requested it? So it makes a big difference, Judge Wardlaw, because Section 8005 speaks of an item and, and of military requirements and whether that uh, is unforeseen whether the item is unforeseen. And the language of the uh, uh, provision, I think it's 10 U.S.C. 2241, which reflects the same limitations, um, but is not part of uh, just each individual Appropriations Act, but is part of uh, Title 10, uses similar terms. And the item in those contexts is an item in DOD's budget, not in other agencies' budget. The, the whole purpose of Section 8005 is to regulate that dynamic and ongoing uh, relationship for well, I understand budgeting. the parties have a dispute about what the particular item is. What your your characterization of the item is, what? The 284 uh, counter-drug support by DOD. And that that's the kind of thing that could have been included in DOD's budget request. And remember, DOD's Appropriation Act for FY19 was finalized in September of 2018, several months before, I think about five months before the DHS appropriation was finalized. And so the question about whether it's unforeseen, what kind of item we're talking about, all has to be measured with respect to the DOD appropriations process, which was concluded in September of 2018. Can you clarify one factual issue for me? Uh, motions panel said multiple times in its opinion that DOD was going to transfer the funds after they had been put into the counter-drug DOD account, was going to transfer the funds to DHS. Is that that correct or is that wrong? No, Judge Collins, that's wrong. Um, So the record explains, and uh, I'll acknowledge it's a little bit tedious. It uses a lot of um, jargon. Um, That's the nature of these budgeting and appropriations. Uh, documents, but it, but it makes clear that the transfer is within the DOD accounts. The DOD is going to be the one to actually spend the funds. Build, yes, build yes, Judge Collins, wall. that's right. Okay, and, and 
so let me just go back just word law to your question because i think you were asking also if i'm if i am understanding correctly about whether the um approval of a lower amount for d h s constituted some kind of congress's word on what it would spend for fencing along the southwest border and and i think the answer to that is twofold one point i just made is that that's dhs not dod but but wholly apart from that still the government uh, fair enough it's Your still Honor. the executive branch and, and right? so if the question is whether congress in that consolidated appropriations act by approving a smaller amount a lower amount of appropriations than was requested the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, which is the legislative branch's independent watchdog agency, expressly concluded and pointed out that it has reached similar conclusions many times in You're several referring decades. referring to your 28J letter? Yes, Your Honor, that's right. How much deference do we owe to the GAO? So the, the court has no deference, but again, Judge Kavanaugh in the um, Department of the Navy opinion referred to that as an expert view, and the court should give it um, uh, appropriate consideration. And GAO is the expert agency uh, with respect to appropriations law, and that's why all of those cases uh, often refer to GAO opinions uh, about appropriations questions. So, so GAO expressly said that the, the approval of a lower amount by Congress is not a denial and that transfers by several agencies, not just DOD under this authority, had been approved by GAO in the past where there had been a, a, a lower... Not just the denial of a greater amount. It's just, so it's fascinating to me how these briefs are, are written, how the case is written. Um, one starts from almost pre-election with the president promising a border wall and just going to cost, you know, however billion, and Congress refusing to expend that money over and over to pay for that. Government shut down. Um, ultimately, some compromise for some lesser amount for some smaller piece. And then you start with the item has to be it has to be specifically requested by DOD and specifically turned down by, it's almost like you're, ta you're lighting each other. You know. So Judge Warlow, I, I don't think we're um, talking past each other, but I do think that the relevant consideration is the statutory text, and Section 8005 does talk about those items denied by Congress that were unforeseen, higher priority military. The, that's, the, that's the basis for the district court's permanent injunction. It's the appropriate focus for the, the court is here. Is it your Let me... view that an item is denied within the meaning of 8005 only if the line is zeroed out? So, Your Honor, I don't think that's um, the only way it could be denied, but, but I think this is a, an important point about why 8005 regulates the relationship between Congress and the Defense Department. It, it doesn't... Um, it, 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 the way we pointed out in our brief that there's a lot of evidence of the back and forth between the agency and the appropriations uh, experts on the Hill. Um, that's often reflected in the committee in the conference report, which which we cited. 600, I think 680 some pages that goes through the back and forth. What was requested? What the House uh, approved? What the Senate approved? What the conference committee? finally decided. So there's there's all that back and forth, and that's the evidence of what Congress considered and denied your So if they, you know, didn't zero out a line, but they put in the conference report, we don't want it spent on this, you would say that that counts as a denial? That could well be, Judge Collins. And again, um, you know, all of this, it's not clear whether that would be 
judicially enforceable in that context and it's hard to imagine a situation but certainly not by plaintiffs asserting the kinds of interests that these plaintiffs are alleging where a court could sort of discern based on that back and forth but that's the back and forth that Congress uses to determine whether an item was denied whether this is an appropriate use of the transfer of authority and that transfer authority is again set by Congress let me go back judge Wardlaw to your point about the the Consolidated Appropriations Act enacted later in that statute Congress expressly included an authorization to use prior transfer authorities in addition to the transfer authorities in that bill itself so Congress could have if it sought to restrict the use of the transfer authority could have in the Consolidated Appropriations Act prohibited that use for any particular purpose or altogether not only did it not do that it expressly approved those uses judge Collins this just going back to this question about what's denied and what's not again the GAO has said that merely reducing an amount is not a denial I'm not aware of any other opinions that the GAO may have issued about what might constitute a denial but I think one thing we know is that here there's such an attenuation different bill different agency different request that it's not within and GAO made this clear it's not within the terms of the limitation in section 8005 getting back to the zone of interest on this record is there anyone you believe is within the zone of interest that could challenge the border wall funding so your honor there's a it's possible again there are several on this record on this record so the record does include the details about the programs from which the funds were taken and a very large bulk of the funds were from military personnel excess retirement estimates that turned out not to be needed because military personnel weren't using the different benefit that was offered to them so those estimates turned out to be excessive some of the other programs though may have included for example a contractor who who expected to be granted you know a contract to build a I don't recall many of the states independently of California and New Mexico raised similar issues they say we have substantial military contracting in our state that would be effective why isn't that sufficient on the low standard of the zone of interest to satisfy the requirement Chief Judge Thomas in on this record again the plaintiffs here are not asserting that any contractor in their state would have been entitled to funds from a transfer or account so I don't think they've they've alleged those kinds of interests here your question is whether whether it's possible that somebody might in theory be within the zone of interest I don't know the answer to that but but again whether somebody is able to challenge in a particular case is not the appropriate measure somebody owned a home that was a ranch right on the border and in connection after the funds are reprogrammed they come with a wrecking ball to tear it down is that person of course they're going to compensate him for it but they come with a wrecking ball does he have a cause of action to say wait a minute the program reprogramming was illegal they're just cons it sounds a little bit like patch act which I expect is is your point and the Supreme Court there said that 
users of the uses of the land at least with respect to that statute at issue in that case could be within the zone of interest but that's because the purpose of the statute that authorized acquisition of land for indian uses by indian tribes in that case expressly considered the uses it was designed to encourage economic economic benefits for the tribes themselves and so congress identified that purpose here the downstream use for construction or demolition or whatever it might be is not the purpose of the transfer authority so the the homeowner in that case like these plaintiffs here might have a claim about the the statute authoring that authorizing that later use here to eighty four we can talk about two eighty four that expressly authorizes the conduct the construction at issue here but that's not what the district court found in the the purpose of the transfer statute just has nothing to do with the later use which could be really anything within military requirements still would have no cause of action in your view i think that's right your honor at least with respect to enforcing the limits in eight section eight thousand five there would be ample remedies for challenging it on other grounds but but i think if what we're talking about is just eight thousand five the transfer the internal transfer authority that's what the zone of interest needs to focus on here you have a case that would indicate that like in this case eight thousand five is essentially in my view affirmative defense but that is subject to a zone of interest requirement as opposed to a statute where there's an implied cause of action or direct cause of action um chief judge thomas i think um i would have to take issue first with this sort of affirmative defense formulation and i would say then that because we don't you know we haven't conceived of this as an affirmative defense we have i haven't frankly looked for cases that frame it that way but one of the reasons i think we know um looking at for example um i think clark says this the the gravamen of the complaint and the limitations of the the statute or the constitutional provision sought to be enforced is the proper focus of the zone of interest inquiry um in that based on that focus the the limitation here is not the um constitution's appropriations clause by itself because as i said to judge ward law earlier these funds were appropriated by congress in the defense department fy19 appropriations act the only question is whether this the internal transfer authority has been complied with i would like to reserve some time for rebuttal your honor and i appreciate the court's questions uh if there are no further i'd like to reserve the remainder thank you of course we from the sierra club thank you your honors good morning uh troy ladine for plaintiff sepalese sierra club and the southern border communities coalition and with me is newer suffer i think you've been here throughout the entire litigation if that's right so welcome back thank you your honor um i think i'd like to devote my time to three questions and then obviously answer uh whatever else the court is interested in um i'd like to explain why the motions panel got it right um i'd like to ask this court to in addition reach the section 284 issue that was alluded to in some of the questioning and finally i'd just like to emphasize the urgency of action at this stage um so first of all we don't think um 
given the the manifest correctness of the of the motion panel's decision we don't think you need to go beyond the second layer decision because you can find that whether or not it's binding on this court the motions panel was correct it was persuasive it had us here at argument it had supplemental briefing it issued a published decision and whether or not it's binding i believe the court should adopt its conclusions in particular the conclusion that has been the subject of some of this back and forth about whether the government is invoking section eight thousand and five as an affirmative defense or whether in fact we are bringing claims under section eight thousand and five i think it might help to clarify just where they were talking about the timeline in the different briefs we filed this complaint on february nineteenth which was the first business day after the president signed the consolidated appropriations act and also on february fifteenth was the day that the white house issued an official announcement saying that they were taking the one point three seven five billion that congress had given them after this very lengthy government shutdown but would nonetheless be building a border wall for eight point one billion dollars and that that's at scr one eighty six that white house announcement on february fifteenth doesn't include at all section eight thousand five and there's a good reason for it they weren't trumpeting the fact that they were going to be raiding military personnel and pension funds for the wall we also did not know that that was their intention and when we sued we raised claims under the appropriations act because what they had announced was an intention to disregard congress's appropriations judgment as well as under the consolidated appropriations act we did not assert a private right of action under eight thousand five nor did we even know that eight thousand five was going to be triggered we later amended the complaint once they invoked eight thousand five which was in march and again in may and and we we added reasons why that was not a lawful defense for their spending but we never suggested that section eight thousand five conferred a private right of action and i do think that the the motions panel got it exactly right in saying these are claims under the appropriations act they turn as many appropriations act claims must on issues of statutory interpretation because that is how congress exercises its appropriations judgment but that does not convert every appropriations issue which is fundamentally a separation of powers issue into just a rote statutory claim if we were to disagree with any of the motions panels conclusions is it your position that under layer we lack the authority to do so your honor our position is yes that that layer states that a published motions panel decision is as binding as any other panel decision did layer address the applicability of the law of the case doctrine and how that applies when a court remains seized of a case and can reconsider and change its decisions in the courts did it discuss that doctrine at all with the cases that discuss it my understanding that layer was focusing instead on law of the circuit which is i understand it is sort of a more binding uh rule than law of the case so while law of the case can change over the course of the case um if it turns out that you know facts have changed or um there was some i think a manifest error might might also uh erode law of the case law of the circuit is simply not subject to those limitations uh so i believe layer was focusing on law of the circuit um because we've when you made this you made this comment that the day after the president signed the um the caa that he announced an eight billion dollar an intent to build an eight billion dollar was that confined 
the monies that, he, that they were going to use to do that, was that confined to monies d appropriated to the DOD or the DHS or so, in any way? So the 8.1 is a combination of the 1.375 that Congress gave. Um, around six, um, I think it's around 6.2 maybe, coming from the Department of Defense, out of which we have 2.5 billion at issue in this appeal. And next week, I don't know who will be uh, with me at that argument, but we'll be back in the district court on um, the, the, the remaining $3.5 billion that, uh, that is under the national emergency. And then in addition, there's a small source of, by relative to this case, $600 million, uh, taken from the Treasury Forfeiture Fund. But where the funds come from for the national emergency? Is that also DOD? Uh, yes, sorry, that's also DOD. So that's another $3.5 billion that's not, not at issue today. Um, I'm not sh sure that what you've said about the law of the case is correct, because we held in the Hauser case, we will reconsider a ruling of this court on the same issue presented in the same action if a showing is made which compels us to reconsider our prior decision. And we said that with respect to a prior motions panel decision. And we said, where we have published a decision setting forth the reasons which guided us in resolving a legal issue in a certain way, we can more readily determine whether a proper showing has been made. So Lair didn't address the law of the case doctrine and the ability when a court remains seized of a case to reexamine the rulings. It talks about, yes, published authority is generally binding, but it didn't address this issue as I read it. I your Honor, I'm not, I'm not contending that, that Lair addressed law of the case, and, and if I said that, I, I misspoke, and I apologize. Lair, I believe, speaks only to law of the circuit. My contention is that once you have law of the circuit, whether it was created by a motions panel or by uh, a merits panel, it remains law of the circuit and, and must meet the Miller v. Gammy test rather than the law of the case test in order to be undone. But, but I, I also want to stress, Your Honor, we're not asking you to make that ruling here. Um, because we do think that there's you know, ample enough reason to follow uh, the, the motions panel. And in addition, I, I, I just want to add um, a little bit over and above what the motions panel found. So one thing is, if you disagree, uh, and you're, you further disagree with the motions panel that this case um, is arising under the Appropriations Act or the court's equitable powers, uh, and you agree with the government that there needs to be a zone of interest showing under Section 8005, before uh, the government's actions under Section 8005 may be checked. Um, I want to commend to this case the D.C. Circuit's very thorough opinion in scheduled airlines, in which they were also faced with a statute that Congress enacted back in 1849 specifically to govern the appropriations relationship between uh, the executive branch and Congress. It was also a case against the Department of Defense. And there, the government said, as it does here, well, private plaintiffs can't really enforce that. And the, the D.C. Circuit found um, it's certainly true that the private plaintiffs in that case were not regulated by the statute and that it was not enacted for their benefit. It was for the benefit of the public fisc and for Congress's appropriations control. Nonetheless, what matters is the congruence of the interest between the challenger and Congress. And there was no question that the plaintiff was a suitable challenger because it was seeking to accomplish exactly what Congress was trying to accomplish, which is enforce the restrictions on the executive uh, misusing appropriated funds. Here, too, there's no meaningful way in which our interests can diverge from Congress. But further, as your questioning has shown, no one else can come into this court who the government would agree is within the zone of interest and enforce the government, 
uh, moving a billion dollars out of military retirement money. There's simply no one who can do that. So if the government is correct, there's just a billion dollar slush fund lying around in DOD for the government to use as they please. May I ask a clarifying question? The motions panel spent a great deal of time discussing the authority under the Administrative Procedures Act. But as I read your First Amendment complaint, you are not raising that claim. Is that true? Your Honor, we don't think this case is best thought of as an, uh, as an APA case. We think it's best thought of as a non-statutory ultra vires action. <clears throat> My question is, did you plead that? Uh, we, we did not plead it as an APA claim. Now, this court has said it's... Uh, I, I, we certainly uh, put in our stay briefing. I believe it's in our briefing here, too. This court has said numerous times that the, there's, there's no you know, specific preclusive meaning to that. The panel and, and the Supreme Court in Japanese whaling said the same. The panel can take and the Supreme Court can take a complaint that did not plead an APA claim and construe it as an APA claim. So certainly that's within your power if, if you think it is an APA claim. We do think that a non-statutory ultra-virus action is the way historically uh, courts look at examples of the executive acting without any authority. Is it your view that a non-statutory ultra-virus claim that the standing goes to the outer limit of Article 3? That there's no, I know we don't call it prudential standing anymore, but that there's no prudential limits on the standing? Yes, Your Honor, but I, I think the reason that that is the case is because ultra-virus actions are rare actions in which an executive officer takes an action without any legal authority. And so dating back to England, courts of equity have been available to enforce that. I, I think a, a prudential restriction, first of all, the court in Lexmark has already started you know, disapproving of those, but they do really speak to, in Lexmark, to the court's unflagging uh, need to address cases that are properly before it. And nothing is more properly, we believe, before Article Three courts than separate core separation of powers issues that implicate uh, private citizens. I mean, they've always been able to call upon the courts for that. So yes, I don't think there's an additional limit. Your Honor, if I, if I may just say one thing about urgency, please. Um, ever since the Supreme Court uh, stayed this action, or stayed the, the injunction in this action, uh, the government has moved very quickly to spend the money and, and begin building. Um, as we speak, there are uh, sections of wall going up in Oregon Pipe, uh, which has up until now been a highly protected national monument. Uh, there's huge amounts of water being drawn because they're, uh, they're putting the wall um, with a great deal of cement, um, and there's bulldozers uh, and, and really heart-wrenching pictures from the border that are being sent to me every day. So I would just ask uh, this court to please um, move as expeditiously as it can. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Here from the state. Good morning, and may it please the court. James Zaratka with the California Department of Justice on behalf of the states. Um, you heard counsel for the federal government talk about recreational, environmental, and aesthetic interests. Those are the interests that the organizational plaintiffs assert, well recognized uh, as legitimate. What they fail to mention repeatedly in their briefs and here today are the state's interests. And there's an important distinct interest unique to the states, our sovereign interest in our enforcing our laws, which defendants' conduct have wiped out. We have laws to enforce the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, which Congress has specifically said apply to federal construction projects. And through their series of actions, it's really one set of actions that should be looked at together, their uh, divert, wave, and build scheme the defendants have wiped those out. The states are impeded, prevented from enforcing their laws. This is an interest that was not before the state panel, 
not before the supreme court and defendants consistently ignore it in fact they cite the same case that we do that this is irreparable harm when a state is put when a government is prevented from enforcing its laws this is the maryland the king case justice roberts that is irreparable harm they cite the same case far from contesting it the only argument they make is an argument about traceability which is an article three argument and they don't contest article three standing so this issue needs to be addressed by this court the state's particular harms um, as far as the constitutional claims go uh, they they urge us they urge you to look at the complaint and i would do the same you'll see in our complaint our first two claims are constitutional violations that's the heart of this case whether or not this 8005 statute is complied with or not their actions are unconstitutional the justice wardlaw judge wardlaw went through the actions that preceded the, the government shutdown we have a clear denial we have a clear refusal by congress to fund border barriers beyond 1.375 billion dollars in the rio grande valley could not be clearer how do you define the item your honor that is relevant to the 8005 statutory claim it's not relevant to the appropriations clause claim which we is the heart of this case um, the item but i would say for the statutory but claim they claim their authorization to spend the money or to move the money and then spend it is 8005 then we have to look at what counts as an item under 8005 how what are the criteria what's the test for determining what counts as the relevant item so i'll say just i'll address that but also say that whether or not they comply with section 8005 has no bearing on our constitutional claims because they flew in the face their actions flew in the face of congress's repeatedly expressed will and that's they can't do that under youngstown and they also made a different policy choice, which is written by City of New York. So, so even if 8005 allows them to transfer the money, it's your view that there is a constitutional violation with doing so based on, on what? What prevents, if the statute says they can move the money, what prevents them from moving the money? The Constitution, Your Honor. And, and if this, explain sorry. Explain that. Of course. So if, if 8005 would be deconstrued to allow this unconstitutional act, it would be unconstitutional as applied. In the face of this consistent congressional refusal to appropriate funds beyond the $1.375 billion, we have multiple failed legislation. We have a whole shutdown over it. We have the administration coming again and again, give us more, give us more. Congress said no. If they can then go ahead and move money for more border barriers in the face of all that opposition, based on 8005, that's unconstitutional. In violation of the appropriations clause? In violation of the separation of powers doctrine, which manifests itself in various ways, presentment clause, appropriations clause, yes, Your Honor. So if an appropriation statute gives them authority to spend money, they still can't spend it? If there was another debate about a different set of money, they should then, we should read that as barring the express authorization in the other statute? Well, I think this gets back to your question about the item. And the relevant item here, and whether you use a statutory term or just more generally what was at issue, is border barrier funding. It was very clear the government shut down over that. We have a very robust record of congressional refusal on that point. And we have the administration consciously deciding to go against that. The day after the president signed the, congressional, the, the Consolidated Appropriations Act with $1.375 billion in it, he says, I'm adding $6.1 billion more. Um, and that is right in the face, and the city of New York case is very clear on this, that the president cannot countermand Congress's policy choice in that way. And so, yes, Your Honor, if, if this statute were to be interpreted to allow what they're doing, it's unconstitutional as applied. We don't think it should be construed that way, and we do think that the item for statutory purposes 
again back to your question was the border wall that's a common sense interpretation that's the common usage of the word item there the this idea that it's some specific budget line item as i think the state panel properly said could really allow for some gamesmanship on their point and so it's we're talking about the border wall that's what congress refused to fund that's what the president went ahead and transferred money for i'd like to speak briefly to that the gao report and just to say correctly that the panel has mentioned that there is no actual deference due to that their view and also say it doesn't speak at all to the constitutional issues it only speaks to that statutory issue that's really what they have to have any expertise in that's what it is and also say that they really flipped the intent of this 8005 statute completely on its head they say that it was meant to give dod more flexibility when the exact opposite is true they congress went ahead and enacted 8005 because they were perceiving correctly in some cases that dod was putting funds towards uses that Congress had already said no to. So they really just get it, frankly, quite wrong on that point. Um, I'd like to also speak to this issue of the zone of interest. And uh, I think, Judge Collins, your, your hypothetical and their response really shows the breadth of their argument here, which is that really nobody can challenge this act, the act they're taking here. Um, and so I would just say that the Pachak case makes very clear that we look to the ultimate use. So it's not, they try to, they really want to make this about this very technical intergovernmental transfer. But it's, what, what Pachak says is when we look at zone of interest, it's about the ultimate use. No question here, the ultimate use of these funds was to build border barriers. And so our interests, the state's interests, are, are intertwined with the entire process. This is the phrasing of Pachak, that the, the, there it was, um, the statute about land acquisition was directly tied to the ultimate use. Likewise here, what they did with 8005 is ultimately directly tied to their use of the funds, which is to build border barriers. And the states have a profound interest in that, particularly given the fact that our laws were waived through ORIRA. Um, that was what causes irreparable harm to the states. Again, they don't even contest that our inability to enforce our laws is irreparable harm. And Congress has, has said that our state environmental standards apply to federal construction projects. So there isn't even a credible argument that there's some sort of uh, federal preemption here, which they allude to briefly. Um, so I think when we look at Pachak, that shows that we are in the zone of interest, even of the statutory claims. Um, and their, their argument is breathtaking, I would say, in, in, its, in its breadth. It would wipe everyone out from being able to challenge these types of actions. Do you think the zone of interest requirements apply to the appropriations claims, constitutional claims? We don't, Your Honor. Um, Lexmark speaks very specifically about statutes, legislative intent, is congressional Lexmark, intent. The, is Lexmark the latest Supreme Court decision describing the, what the zone of interest test is? Uh, I would say that I'm sure that they have addressed it since, but it's, it certainly sets up the current standard, yes, it's, Your Honor. All right. You would agree a zone of interest test replies to your APA claims? Yes, Your Honor. It's been consistently applied. Um, and I'll speak some more, a little more on the, on the constitutional claims. Um, and the reason that this, this test is so broad is that every stakeholder in our democracy has an interest in ensuring that these structural provisions are enforced. So to, to put, lay over some sort of artificial zone of interest test would make those pillars of the Constitution unenforceable because no one could come into court, as you just heard this morning, no one could come into court to challenge them. And you know, Justice Kennedy was very clear on this in the Bond case where he said that um, you know, 
basically along the lines i just said any person can come in who's harmed in article three sense which by the way it's not that's not a check the box exercise we know that people with generalized grievances a typical taxpayer could not come in and challenge it they would have to have all of the luzhin factors which is that's a test justice kennedy specifically alluded to in bond to say if you meet the luzhin article three factors the fact that these constitutional provisions are meant to preserve liberty for all means that you can come in and challenge. But didn't Bond also refer to prudential? And again, we don't call them prudential again today yes. after Lexmark. But didn't it also refer to the prudential uh, doctrines as well as being relevant? It did, Your Honor. And that is exactly the same part of the discussion where Justice Kennedy mentions Lujan. So what, I, what he is saying there, I think, is quite clear that due to the structural nature of these provisions, the importance of every stakeholder in our democracy being able to come in and challenge uh, actions to undermine it, as long as they meet Lujan. He, I think Lujan he was very clear about that. Lujan talks about Article Three standing. It doesn't talk about right. the prudential ones. And the relevant one here, zone of interest, is a prudential doctrine. Lexmark recasts it. Yes. But it would traditionally, and at the time of Bond, been understood as a prudential doctrine. So why doesn't Bond suggest that it does apply? Because Justice Kennedy discussed that after he talked about Article Three standing. So in that case, the criminal defendants had Article Three standing. But then he went on to say, and uh, you know, we do have prudential concerns, but those are met here, and he referred back to Lujan. So he, his view is quite clear to me that his view is, as long as you have Article Three standing, because of the nature of these constitutional provisions, you were able to come in and assert them. There's no additional zone of interest test layered over that. And this court also endorsed that view of McIntosh in the specific context of the Appropriations Clause, I might add. It cited a lot of uh, Justice Kennedy's language from Bond, including a, a string site with multiple cases where this has been the case, where City of New York, Chadha, other cases were in there. And, and endorsed this idea in the specific context of the Appropriations Clause, did not look to the appropriation itself and say, here's the statute, as defendants want you to do. Just look at the statute and what that's trying to protect. It took a very broad view, uh, just like Justice Kennedy did in Bond. So we think that's appropriate here as well. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Letter, nice to see you again. Welcome back. Different capacity. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Yeah, it, Move it, tables. It is sort of uh, odd here. Um, <laughs> Mr. Byron and I worked together for about 25 years at the uh, Justice Department, and now here I am. And in fact, I worked closely with Judge Collins a batch of times at the Justice Department, but I'm now representing House of Representatives. the House of Representatives, Your Honor. <laughs> um, and in this case, on the right side. That's, um, <laughs> So I just I have several points. I did want to start by saying uh, we the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House, deeply appreciates the courtesy of this court in allowing us to be heard here. Thank you. A um, couple of things. I think that this case is best summed up by a statement by the uh, acting chief of staff, the president's uh, right hand man, Mr. Mulvaney. He said, we're going to build the wall with or without Congress. And that's what this is about. You can't build a wall without Congress. As we know, that's what the Appropriations Clause says. It's absolutely clear. We relied on um, then Judge Kavanaugh's opinion. I think he says something like, uh, you can't buy, an agency can't buy a stick of wood without appropriations from, uh, from Congress. As to the specifics, I did want to address a batch of questions that your honors asked. Uh, Judge Collins, you said, um, what's the item? 
if i may refer you to pages twenty one and twenty two of our amicus brief the administration answered that question down the bottom of page twenty one the sec acting secretary of defense his memorandum with the first transfer of funds he said that the items the items to be funded are and i'm quoting yuma section projects one and two and el paso project one so the secretary of defense knew what the items were and the items are extensive construction of a southern border wall if you look at the statute it says uh, in the proviso it said in no case where the item for which funds are requested that suggest that you're looking at where the funds are going within DOD, doesn't it? I don't think so, Your Honor. I thought, it, in, to my mind, a common sense uh, reading here is the funds that are requested. President Trump said requested, very clearly requested, said, I want to build a border wall, and I want a whole lot of money to do that. And Congress, remember, not just the House, Congress said, Absolutely not. So I think, Your Honor, that, that uh, again, a common-sense reading against the backdrop of, as my, co my learned co-counsel said, remember that Section 8005, from which you're quoting, was meant by Congress as a restriction on the, the ability of the executive branch to reprogram and transfer money. And so under those circumstances, when it was absolutely clear to everybody that we are talking about a border wall, and indeed, Your Honor, why would the administration have shut down the government for several, uh, for a long period as it did, if it knew, oh, all of this is just theater because we can and will move the money from DOD? That can't possibly be what was meant. Uh, it's, it's just impossible to believe that Congress decided to provide a statute whereby the president can be denied so publicly and specifically in a way where Congress said, ultimately said, we'll give you a certain amount of money, but we don't think what you, what you want the money for is not a good use of the taxpayers' funds. Absolutely clear there. Um, if I may, I just wanted to add also one item on the, uh, the GAO report and the uh, expert nature of the GAO. I, I think, I hope that this court um, I'd like to express outrage for you. Notice that the GAO opinion never even mentions, not even mentions, the determination by Judge Gilliam and this court about the legal issues here. I'm, I'm just astonished that a federal agency would purport to describe the meaning of a statutory provision without even mentioning recent decisions um, by judges. Um, the, the zone of interest test, uh, I think what, what we would like the court to do, and, and again we cited in our brief, is uh, I believe that, that Judge Bork uh, provided a very good discussion in the, uh, the Bracey decision, and I think the court, uh, it's, it's a quite persuasive decision that, uh, that still holds. So I, I um, urge the court to, uh, to look at Judge Bork's uh, words there. Um, oh, and, and the one other thing is, again, my friend, Mr. Byron, who, by the way, is a phenomenal oral advocate, uh, I believe what I heard the answer to, I think it was Chief Judge Thomas's question, was no, 
as a practical matter nobody can sue the appropriations clause can be violated at will by the president in such a major and public way and there really is nothing that the courts are going to be able to do about it because we the Justice Department are going to oppose anybody coming into court to try to enforce this absolutely central part of the U.S. Constitution with roots going back hundreds of years into British history about the importance of the power of the purse being exercised by the representatives of the people. The court has no other questions. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. Just a few points in rebuttal, if I may. First of all, on the zone of interest, just take issue with Mr. Leder's characterization of our position. We're not saying, and we've made very clear in our briefing as well, we're not saying that there could never be a plaintiff who could be within the zone of interest of either this restriction or any of numerous other restrictions in appropriations acts. I want to go, though, to Judge Collins, your question about the plaintiff's characterization of their claim as one that does not rest in some way on Section 8005 because I don't think it's fair or accurate in light of the way the claims have actually been addressed in this case and the way they were presented to the district court and to this court. The idea that Congress silently, merely by enacting an appropriation statute for DHS with a lower amount of funding for that agency than was requested, somehow implicitly acted to prohibit the use of a statutory transfer authority that is in DOD's own appropriation statute and that the Consolidated Appropriations Act itself expressly preserves, it boggles the mind. This idea that Congress can somehow impliedly act in a way that contradicts its express statutory terms does not make any sense. And it's certainly not confirmed by any of the appropriations cases that we've looked at. And Judge Thomas, I want to go back to your question about whether this could be fairly characterized as an affirmative defense. If the plaintiff's claim is just period, there has been no appropriation, then the defense isn't, you know, we've complied with the terms of 8005. The defense is, yes, there was an appropriation. The funds were appropriated in the DOD FY19 Appropriations Act. Then the plaintiff's counter is, obviously, we didn't comply with the terms limiting the transfer authority. You know, we're pretty far down the line at that point, but that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's the plaintiff's gravamen of the plaintiff's complaint. It's the statute whose terms they seek to enforce. And it's those limitations that are at issue here, and it's those limitations that are the appropriate focus of the zone of interest inquiry. That zone of interest inquiry, going back, Judge Collins, to your questions to opposing counsel about how that plays out in different contexts, and Chief Judge Thomas, I think you asked as well about in an equitable ultra-virus claim how the zone of interest requirement should be understood. We think that Lexmark properly understood did not abrogate the Supreme Court's earlier clear statements in Clark and in Valley Forge Christian College and in pretty much every case that talks about the zone of interest, that the zone of interest requirement is a universal one, that Congress may in some circumstances expand the zone of interest, perhaps theoretically maybe even to 
all plaintiffs with an Article III injury, although Thompson against um, uh, North American Stainless suggests that that might not actually be right. And the only case where the Supreme Court has said that expressly is in the Fair Housing Act context in Title VIII, and even in Title VII, which has a person aggrieved standard, much like the APA, uh, Thompson makes clear that not everybody can sue. The, the hypothetical there, this is, this is really critical, is that a shareholder couldn't sue, uh, even though the shareholder has Article III injury from the diminution of the stock price, merely based on a discriminatory firing of, say, the CEO, which causes the share price to decline. That, that shareholder is not within the zone of interest of Title VII. Um, similarly here, the zone of interest of Section 8005, the transfer statute, wholly apart from Section 284, has to do with the relationship between Congress and the Pentagon. And that transfer statute, like others that the GAO referred to, is designed to ensure flexibility because Congress does want to make sure that the needs of the military can be met even as they change after the enactment of the Appropriations Act for any particular fiscal year. But your position in this case, or in other cases, is that Congress has no standing and is not within the zone of interest, correct? So, Your Honor, Congress has not sued in this case. In other cases where the House of Representatives has sued or where individual legislators have sued, questions of legislative standing have been addressed and must be resolved, and those are serious. Those Article III concerns are related to the Article III concerns in other contexts. But that doesn't mean the fact that Congress can't come to court doesn't mean Congress can't enforce its mandate. It does so all the time, both in the ongoing appropriations process, and the GAO referred to this, and also in the enactment of statutes. I and guess the- I understood from your briefing that almost that precise point, that in response to who can sue, that litigation, from, from what I read in your brief, that litigation is not the proper response, that the proper response is a political response. So Judge Wardlaw, um, there, by legislative enactments by the House or whatever. So Judge Wardlaw, I think I was just trying to explain that that is the ordinary way Congress enforces its concerns about this budgeting process and the flexibility it's afforded. It's not. We're not, however, saying that it's the only way. And and I've tried to make that clear that there could be a potential plaintiff in an appropriate case who could sue, and that we've never said otherwise. We've tried to make very clear that we are not taking that categorical position here. This zone of interest inquiry really is about the interest that these plaintiffs have raised. And the idea that they can evade the zone of interest requirement that would be required when Congress enacts an affirmative express right of action, such as in the APA itself, um, merely by saying, well, we're not relying on that express cause of action. We're relying on an implied cause of action, whether under the appropriations clause of the Constitution or under some equitable ultra virus theory. That would undermine the principle of the um, zone of interest requirement as the Thompson against North American Steel um, made very clear, and indeed as Lexmark did too, if, if an implied right of action is broader than an express one that doesn't make any sense from a separation of powers perspective. I see my time's almost expired. If the court has any further questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Otherwise, we'd ask you to reverse and vacate the decisions below. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank all of you for for your arguments today and your briefing. It's been very helpful to the court. And we'll be in recess.